You're listening to Kiss My Aesthetic, your go-to podcast for bragworthy branding, marketing, and entrepreneurship advice. I'm your host, Michelle Winterstein of MKW Creative Co. Let's dive into the episode. Greetings and welcome back to the Kiss My Aesthetic podcast. She's back. We tried to record on Monday, but now we're recording again on Friday. Welcome, Lauren. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me and being patient with my little stuffy nose. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm glad that we found a time that works because we were really starting to get into good talking points, you know, but we decided to re-record. We got to get healthy first. Even you're running your own business, you know, sometimes the sickness gets the best of you, but I bet you're grateful to be your own boss this week, huh? Yes, I am. It's one of those things. I actually want to do a blog post that's like the thing that I hate the most is taking that forced time off. So take the time off you need. Otherwise, God is going to be like, okay, little miss, you need to take some time. (laughs) Yeah, you you can spend some time on the couch. How about that? Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Well, anyone who doesn't know you yet, can you please tell us who you are, what you do, and who you help? And then we'll get into the good stuff. Yes. So my name is Lauren Goldstein. I own Golden Key Partnership. I have been doing the work that I love for 12 years, helping business owners get out from underneath their business with the right teams and operations. My clients think, lovingly nicknamed me the biz doctor about six years ago because I specialize in really diagnosing what's keeping you stuck in the trenches of your business and preventing you from having a business instead of a business that's really a job. Mm-hmm. And the biz doctor name really stuck because you have kind of an interesting path to where you ended up. Tuck us back from that 12 years ago, where you were, how you decided this is what you wanted to do, and what your background is, because I think it's an interesting story. Yes, it is a very interesting story. So many, many moons ago, I don't know if this will resonate with any of you guys, but I am a little bit OCD and I like to plan things and be in control. (laughs) So I'd planned my whole life. You know, I was going to be a pediatrician with matching Labradors and Land Rovers married to a wonderful man. And so I worked in pediatric neurology and epilepsy research as I was about to go to medical school. And I remember being on the epilepsy monitoring unit one day and a little baby came in that we treated. And then the insurance company came back and said, just kidding, we're not going to pay for this continued treatment because I don't know if you know this, but epilepsy treatments are still a little experimental. And I had this moment of existential clarity, I want to call it, where I realized that insurance companies are dictating patient care instead of doctors. And I'm a little bit of a rebel. And I just was like, this is not right. I don't know how I'm going to continue down this path when at the end of the day, my hands are tied and I can't do what's best for my patients. So I did what any sane person would do. I gave my notice and I mean, in in research, so it was like a two month notice because research is a whole different animal outside of clinical. And it was one of the most humbling periods of my life because I felt like a cork in an ocean where my identity had been so wrapped in being a doctor. I, you know, I had this whole life plan. And then I woke up one day and said, this isn't for me anymore. And I had no idea who I was or what I was going to do. So I did what I think anybody having an existential crisis does. You know, I reached out to mentors. I read every self-help book. I hired Tony Robbins coaches. I was doing all the things, trying to figure it out. And I remember crying into my grits one morning and telling my mentor that I was really afraid I was never going to figure out what my path was 
because I felt so lost and confused. And he said, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot. And I really think you should be a consultant. And I laughed at him and I was like, you cannot be serious. Like I worked with tiny humans for so many years. I didn't do all the things you're supposed to do in college where you explore all the classes. I don't have an MBA. You're nuts. And he goes, no, 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 hear me out. I think one of the most valuable things for business owners is having that unbiased third party come in and help you see the forest for the trees because you can't read the label when you're in the bottle. And you have such a unique problem-solving mind, which is why you want it to be in medicine because you can take all these symptoms and find the root cause. And he said, that's what business owners need. And this man was very successful, very, very successful. So I said, why the heck not? And, you know, he was really my steward in those first few critical years. And as I got my sea legs and, you know, I was a mile wide and an inch deep with what I'd offer because I was just trying to do the work and figure out what I knew and what I didn't know. And, you know, I was always five, 10 steps ahead of my clients, reading the books and the YouTube and all the things. And yet, and then that full circle moment six years ago when my client, after a diagnostic, he was so funny. He goes, okay, that was brutal. It's a lot worse than I thought. He's like, I feel like you just took my business and stuck it through an MRI machine and you were like, there's the cancer. <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, I'm sorry. This was shocking. And also I take that as a compliment because you can't fix what you can't see. So that's how we got to be where we are today. It's such a useful thing because I think we as business owners take for granted how much we don't know what we don't know. And I was explaining this to you on Monday when we had started recording is I've been working with different mentors and the same thing, you know, what's bothering you on a day-to-day basis, but it's so hard to zoom out and figure out like, okay, why are we feeling this way? Why do we feel like we keep working with clients and we're hitting our heads against the same wall? Or why do we feel like this part of the process always feels slow and complicated? Or why do we feel like everyone that's filling out the contact form is not a qualified match? Like what are those symptoms of those are symptoms of larger problems. So kind of walk us through that client customer journey of like they hear of you, they find you on social media, or they get referred to you. What's the first thing you're doing? And how do you kind of lay out a plan for them based on what they're telling you? So the first step in all of my services is really that diagnostic piece, because the thing that I've learned, and this might shock you, so maybe trigger warning people, if you're running your business off revenue, Revenue is a lagging metric and it will get you in some pretty hot water. So what we do is really diagnosing from a holistic standpoint, your people, do you have the right team for you? Because yes, your best friend who also owns a business might have a similar business, but it doesn't mean that her team is your team because we all have different strengths and weaknesses as a business owner and CEO. Then we look at your processes. And creating leverage because if your processes are not set up to be duplicatable and simple, then you're just creating more chaos and chaos does not scale or grow very well, (laughs) if at all. And then we look at your profitability because profits really are where you tell your story. And so we look at revenue cliffs, concentrated risks, and really understanding in your client journey what happens once someone says yes. So sales, marketing, PR, that's all to get someone to say yes. But the work that I do is what happens when someone says yes. Where does the fulfillment come in? Where does the team support come in? Where does the 
wash, rinse, repeat come in so that you can have a proven product, a proven process, and a predictable revenue and profitability stream so that when you do want to scale, you can do it effectively. So everything starts there because if you're going after the wrong thing or duct taping different symptoms, then you'll just wind up having similar problems down the road. It might be temporarily better, but if you don't address that root, then you're just going to be playing whack-a-mole and that's not going to be very much fun. Or you just kind of get to the top of your own personal knowledge. I think this is kind of where I've been feeling recently like a little bit like, okay, I've gotten as far as I know I can get on my own and now I don't know what I don't know. And I don't know how what the next chapter of this looks like or where we're going. And I say this to my parents. They're both like very entrepreneurial. And my parents are like, you're fine. You know lots of things. Like you're fine. And I just, I think being that like recovering type A oldest child stuff, you're just like, I just want someone to tell me what my benchmarks are. (laughs) Like, There's so many. And I think there's a lot of coaches online and there's a lot of business consultants that create group programs around exactly that. And it's just, there's no way that there can be a fit all solution for how different everyone's businesses are, for how much like the whole landscape of business ownership has changed. Women couldn't even own an LLC until 1988. That's insanity. So I think it's interesting. I think you probably must encounter this a lot with your clients too. Is like, it's easy to think other people dictate what your benchmarks should be. You know what I mean? Or be distracted by that. Do you run into that often? I do because there's this, I might go in a tiny soapbox for a minute. There's this kind of belief that if you have a seven-figure business that you've made it or this like ego around a seven-figure launch or this and that. And I can tell you that there are so many very successful business owners that maybe aren't making seven figures, but they're taking home a heck of a lot more pay or the seven-figure launches that, sure, they made seven figures, but at the end of the day, they took home 10K. That, to me, isn't success. And so one of the things that I really, really try and hone in on with my clients is what kind of business owner are you and what kind of business are you building? Are you building a legacy business or are you building a lifestyle business? Because everyone has different versions of what success in their business is. And you might want to be an owner operator, or maybe you just want to be an owner, or maybe you just want to start something and then have it run itself, get paid dividends, disbursements, whatever you want, and then go start something else. And if you're not clear, And you're not making that shift from being reactive to proactive because that's something that really has to happen for you to even get to those seven figures. So many of us started our business because we saw a problem. We knew we could solve it with our skills. But then all of a sudden we're playing whack-a-mole, putting out fires all day and having a hard time working on the business because we're constantly in the business. And so making that shift from reactive to proactive is key. And that shift is really about getting clear on your objectives, your goals, your KPIs. Because if you're chasing numbers just for the sake of numbers or clients just for the sake of clients, you're not going to have the success and fulfillment and impact that you want. And I, you know, I had a mentor tell me years and years and years ago, don't compare your behind the scenes to everyone else's highlight reel. And that is something that sometimes I feel like I need to tattoo on my forehead backwards so I can read it in the mirror (laughs) because it's so easy 
to look at someone's business and say, I want that, but you don't actually know what's going on behind the scenes. And in fact, one of the questions that I ask my clients to kind of, you know, really hit this home is if you were in the market to buy a business and your business was on the market tomorrow, would you buy it in the current state that it's in? Mm. And if the answer is no, because you know all your dirty laundry, then as Ricky said to Lucy, you got some splaining to do and you better get to work. Mm -hmm. I want to circle back to what you said that is really kind of just ringing in my head now, which is the difference between a legacy business and a lifestyle business. I think that's not talked about enough. I think there's kind of a shiny object syndrome of building this legacy business that's going to run without you and finance all of your kids' college educations when really most people, I think, probably want just a lifestyle business. That's my guess. But can you actually define it in your terms and talk about the difference between those two things and the pros and cons of each? Yeah. So to me, a lifestyle business, as you said, is something that will pay for your lifestyle. Generally, this is a business where you are one of a few people that fulfill on the service versus a legacy business is something that is very separate from you. It has autonomy. It can run without you. There are service-based businesses that are legacy businesses, but you know, a legacy business might be an insurance company or a SaaS company or something that's product is not your knowledge. Because the thing that's really important for all of us to remember is that we will exit our business at some point. There's no getting around it. (laughs) It's either for one of the five Ds, which is, you know, death, divorce, disagreements, disillusion, and disease. I think it's the fifth one, which is I won't given (laughs) that I'm a little under the water. Those are the five Ds, but there's also, you know, maybe you just want to retire. Maybe you want to sell it. And so generally lifestyle businesses, and this might be a little tough for you guys to hear, lifestyle businesses are generally not assets because there's nothing to sell outside of your knowledge. So although I have a very successful business, it's not a saleable asset because I don't have anything. You know, we have some digital things, but there's nothing really there outside of the work that I do versus, you know, somebody who has a more tangible business that's not based around expertise is an asset. And so There's nothing wrong with having a lifestyle business that pays your bills and makes you very happy for 20 years. And then you're like, you know, and now we're done. That's completely fine. And they're just like the way you operate them is a little different because you have to think of succession planning with legacy. And most lifestyle businesses don't have a succession plan because there's, unless you have a partner, like some law firms are legacies. Sure. um, Sure. Even though they're service based. But Um, it's just a matter of really asking yourself, what do I want this business to be? Do I want it to be something that lives on past me or do I want to pass it down? Or is it really just something that I'm very happy doing, making an impact now and we'll see how it goes. Yeah. And I think you can, like you said, you can be successful at both. Like both have their pros and cons. You can be super successful at running a lifestyle business. And I think that that's really what just clicked is like, I'm totally happy that this is a lifestyle business. I preach this all the time to my team. Like I work for myself because first of all, I couldn't see myself in an office setting 
ever. And also because it affords me a lifestyle where I can work when I feel like working. Like I may take Thursday afternoon off to go get dinner with my friend up in San Clemente, which is what I did yesterday. But I know that I've got work to catch up on on Sunday. And that's a bargain with myself I'm willing to take on because it affords me a lifestyle that I want. And it's lifestyle first, work second for me. That being said, like there's something I think kind of just glamorized and maybe like fetishized a bit about having a legacy business and building something that you can pass on to your next protege and say like, go for it, run with it and seeing what that looks like. But it comes with a whole host of challenges. Now you've got a factor of scale of like, can you scale your knowledge? The book like Built to Sell, I think about that a lot, where the example is a logo design agency that he wants to sell. And his mentor tells him like, you need to make a proprietary process. You need to package up how you do what you do. And then that becomes the product. And I think people forget that. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. I think I noticed that too. So it's interesting. I think like both are very attractive, but both come with different pros and cons, of course. Talk us through what that looks like, the factors of scale issue. Because I imagine you deal with this a lot with your clients is they are owner founder, they're the bottleneck, everything has to go through them because they are the expert. How do you help them get out from under, like you said in the beginning, out from under the business and see things from like a, okay, well, you could consider this, you could consider this, this is, these are your options. How do you lay out those cards when they're saying like, I really want to scale up? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think real quick, as I answer that question, I want to make sure that people listening understand when you scale and the difference between growing and scaling, because I think they're interchanged too much and they are not the same. When you are growing, what you're doing is you're adding resources as well as revenue and new clients. And that what that tends to do is make your revenue and your expenses in kind of a photo finish where your profitability maybe isn't very big and it doesn't grow. And that's because you're really trying to build the foundation in your teams and your processes in your technology as you build this proven process and product and create predictability in that foundation. Now, only when you have a proven product process and predictability and your expenses have stabilized, then are you ready to scale? Because scaling is doing more with the same amount of resources, or if you strategically are adding your resources, doing it in a very stepwise fashion. So when you scale, that's really when you start to see your profits grow because you've had that successful foundation set where it's kind of like just turning on a fire hose versus a garden hose. And so when someone is saying, I really want to scale, my first question is, do you have the predictable product process team and predictability and income to do that? Because if you're still in that yo-yo and I mean, everybody has up and down months, but I'm talking like big up and downs where you haven't stabilized, not time to scale. <laughs> so the first thing though, that I really get clear on is what are their goals? Because most business owners, a little bit like when I was in the medical field, haven't thought about who they are or what they want outside of their business. It's so interconnected. And they've, chances are probably really built their life around their business instead of their business around their life. So this is a mindset shift where they really have to get clear on what do I want? What are my days going to look like when they're not, you know, firefighting and team calls and Slack messages and all of this? And then once we're clear on that, then we have to go do battle against the single biggest thing 
that will stop someone from really stepping out of the trenches. And that is the fear that if they're not doing all the things in the business, that they are irrelevant. Mm-hmm. And so that is an existential crisis of value and helping them see that their value is not just in the doing, but in the leading and the inspiring and the focused time on things that they're very good at instead of all the things, you know, it's not good to be a chief everything officer. You want to focus in. And so those are really the two things that I focus on the most because I don't remember who the quote said is, if you don't know where you're going, you'll end up anywhere, I think is the quote, something like that. And so like really taking a moment and saying, what is your vision for the business, for your life, for your time, and getting them comfortable with just because your team isn't texting, slacking, whatever, every five seconds doesn't mean that you're a bad leader or a bad boss or that you're no longer needed. What are some of the favorite things you've helped clients, like initiatives and programs that help them feel connected to their team when they are in that spot? Because I think a lot of people can resonate with that idea of like, okay, I have all these worker bees that know what they're doing and they're doing their jobs. And now I want to stay connected with them. And I think that also I have a deep seated like passion for wanting to make the kind of workplace that I wish I was part of when I graduated. I just did it myself. I just like started in college and then never worked for a real job. So I have an idea of what it looks like to be salary somewhere. But I'm really, really passionate about like making the type of place that people want to work at. So maybe you can talk us through some of those ways, like you said, like just because you're not in the day to day and just because you're not overseeing every single email exchange, you can still have a role as a leader by doing these things. Talk us through some of the ways you've helped clients do that. Yeah. So two of my favorite things are the weekly huddle. I love a weekly huddle. It's basically a time where we talk about what's working, what's not, where does someone need support, where are the priorities. Super, super helpful. The other one that I really, really love is a monthly or sometimes quarterly. I suggest probably an a more frequent cadence while you're getting started of an all hands. And that's where everyone across every department is there and they get to hear about the wins for the past month. They also get to hear about things that didn't go well because it's a great learning opportunity to do a post-mortem and say, this is what happened. This is how we're going to make sure it doesn't happen again. And then the other thing that I really, really love is figuring out how my team works. So Some people are intrinsically motivated. Some people are not. Some people love money accolades. Some are like, please, God, don't share my accolades in person because that makes me nervous. And so when you figure out who likes what, it enables you to really stay connected better because you know how to interact and build that culture. How are you finding those how people like to be it's kind of like love languages, right? Like how people like to be praised or how they like to be appreciated. Are you doing that in like a quiz format? I know our team uses predictive index and predictive index is a very stellar tool for telling you exactly those things. But for somebody who doesn't even know what any of these assessments are, how can you start to get that information out of your team members? I love this question. Actually, this is a question that we ask upfront in their interview. So I have a whole process called Hiring Made Simple. And one of the questions that I ask first in their interviews is, 
How do you like and take feedback? Because that's very important. And then how do you like to be acknowledged for a job well done? And the reason I actually ask it in the beginning is because I'm primarily looking for players and not worker bees. I'm also looking for people who are really good team players. So a player comes with a plan. They're generally more autonomous. They are the people that you can say, this is the goal, and they will say, great, I'm going to go figure it out. They're very fun to run with, and they actually create profits. Whereas worker bees, and most business owners hire worker bees inadvertently because they're just looking for things to come off their plate. So players are very much project-oriented. Worker bees are very task-oriented, which unfortunately makes you do two people's jobs, your job, and then thinking of things for them to do. Not very fun. Anyway, so worker bees are very task-oriented. They don't generally have big-picture thinking. They're very much like, okay, these are the tasks I need to do. So they're good for repetitive things, and you absolutely need them on your team. But if you have a small, lean team, you should not be managing a single worker bee. You need to be managing all the players and then the players manage the worker bees because you as the business owner just don't have time for that. And so we start at the very, very beginning with the interviews to discern, are we working with a player? Or are we working with a worker bee? Because again, players create profits, but worker bees are expenses. And if you don't have a lot of profit margin and you're still a lean team, you cannot afford the time or the money to hire a worker bee. You need a player until you get to that certain point where you have more profitability and time to manage those worker bees. Okay, this is making sense. So when you're hiring a player, like team player person, what kind of attributes? I know you said like highly independent, can go solve problems. What are their job descriptions typically? Like project manager? Like what are we talking about here? Oh, their title could be just about anything. It could be marketing, sales, project manager, accountant, bookkeeper. It's not so much about a title. It's about how do they operate within the team. So they're good at high level, but also dropping down and getting the work done. And they'll come to you with problems, but they'll never come to you with a problem without a solution which is very fun. And, you know, part of that is, you know, training your team. (laughs) I have a rule of three. But it's really the attitude they have is, I don't necessarily care how we get there. I want to go in the most effective, efficient manner. And so they're going to use all of their experience and expertise to get there. And players, you know, I've said, time and time again. And actually, I had a client several years ago where through my diagnostic, we uncovered that she had two worker bees that had different titles, but were doing very similar things, both terribly. And so like one of them transferred half a million dollars to the wrong account. Oh, no. So like big mistakes. Yeah. So we obviously let them go, hired one part-time player, revolutionized everything about the business. And so players are experts in one, maybe two specific things or areas within your business. And worker bees are not generally experts in a lot of things unless they're going through the motions of how to do the thing. I think that gets mixed up with personality type and job titles, like I just said. I think someone who can be more introverted and is just kind of like task-oriented might actually still be 
proactive about bringing solutions to the table. You know what I mean? And like vice versa, like you could have someone like I think about Cody on my team, who's a business manager, who's super Virgo. Like we (laughs) went on our team retreat and we did like pasta making as like a team building thing. And I'm making like these long stringy noodles and whatever. And she's making the perfectly consistently sized bow tie noodles you've ever seen laid out in perfect rows. And my (laughs) chaotic pile. And I was like, this is why I do what I do. And this is why you do what you do. Because this is how your brain and just the visualization of that was so cool to see because it's just such a different way that our brains work. Same task, work totally different. But she's so great. She's got loads of corporate experience of coming to me saying, hey, I noticed that we're having this issue where you're doing a lot of like all your big heavy lifting calls are ending up on the same day. So I made a heat map, basically your mental energy when we take on a project based on what you've told me of which weeks are the most intensive so that we can triage clients and so that you don't ever have the same amount of mental load all falling on the same day. Amazing. I would have never thought to heat map my own to figure out like, okay, week one is low lift because it's onboarding and week five is low lift because it's offboarding. So weeks two and three and four are pretty heavy. So we're going to not try to put all the, and I'm always just like, oh, just start a project at the top of the month. And she's like, Michelle, no. And I was like, oh, okay. So it was so helpful to see that because now when she's sending proposals with start dates on them, I don't have to tell her my start date. I don't even have to look at my calendar. She can reference this guide and then create a start date for that project that then aligns with the other projects we have in the pipeline. Mm. Do you know why I love this story so much? Tell me. I love it because it so perfectly illustrates the biggest piece of resistance that entrepreneurs and business owners have, which is they're not going to do it the same way as me. And that is the point, my friend, because So many times we just end up hiring a carbon copy of ourselves and then we have the same blind spots, right? Mm -hmm. And so by you hiring Cody and trusting her, which is key, you were able to actually quantum leap your business because she could see things that were in your blind spot. And that is the power of having a player on your team and having the right team for you. Mm-hmm. And it fits my deficiencies. And that's what I see in my predictive index. It's like the personality type is like maverick. Like it's just like go big, go fast, big ideas, not take any breaks. Like we're just gonna go for it. And then what I lack is like attention to detail, small, measured, little, teeny, because I get bored of the small, the repetitiveness. Like that to me is like, Ugh. so to find people that love the repetition and love the consistency and love the organization and know their way around a spreadsheet because I'm absolutely spreadsheet allergic. (laughs) It's great. Like it's so great. It's so helpful to have that because it does. It lets me stay in my zone of genius. It lets me do what I do well, which is the brand design, talking to clients and this podcast where I get to have conversations like this. And then I've got a team that can help actually make that and put it out into the world. It's amazing. It's the best. But it took a long time to get here. Like next year is going to be year 10 for me. Like it took a long time to get to the spot. And I had plenty of people on my team that were on my team and had since been let go for all kinds of reasons. And I think people forget that too. You kind of have the Goldilocks and the three bears kind of analogy. Mm -hmm. But when you hire for traits rather than technology and you hire players instead of worker bees, it will cut off probably 70% of wasted time, money, and energy. Ooh, I like that. Speaking of tech, tech is really important in like streamlining businesses. I know this is a big thing you focus on with your clients as well. 
Some people are really have a hard time with their tech or get very stuck in their ways. They don't want to try new tools. I'm not that person. I'm always like, we're going to use this program now. <laughs> like I've tried it for 20 <laughs> minutes. Let's try this. And I was like, what? But talk to us about some of the tech issues that most of your clients deal with and, and how you help to remedy their tech processes and tools. Okay. I'll see the number one and number two tech issues that I see. The first is tech overwhelm and complexity where I call them business barnacles where I'm like, like you, it's, you know, you've got this graveyard of half used technology that like to do one thing in your business, you're touching seven different pieces of technology. My friends, if that is you, please go to technology anonymous or something because it's not going to help you scale. <laughs> it's like complex does not scale simple scales. And as your business grows, it should get more simple, not more complicated. So that's the first one. The second, which is related, is the lack of adoption. And this is something that I see often where, you know, if I'll come in as fractional COO is when I see it most often, but they'll say, yeah, we use this technology and I like it. The owner likes it, but the team doesn't like it. Mm-hmm. And so then my first question is always, well, why? Why does the team not like it? Do they not understand it? Is it too complex? Is it a pain in their butt and causing a slowdown in friction points in their workflow? I mean, it could be any number of things. But generally, what I've found is that the tech that the entrepreneur thinks they need versus the tech that the team actually needs and wants are counter to one another. And so by being able to take a moment and kind of remove the ego and say, okay, I like this technology, but my team's not using it. Why are they not using it? Or my team wants me to use this. This also happens the inverse. My team wants me to use this, but I'm not using it. Why? And really get clear on where are the friction points? Because, you know, I pretty much have a rule of, well, I have a rule of three, which I think I'll share here. But then I also have this rule of, I don't want anything to come off my plate and then be put back on my plate. So if you take something off my plate and you own a project, don't come to me to get it across the finish line. I'm happy to help you navigate where we need to go. But if you come and put it back on my to-do list, we all know that it will die there because it's been deprioritized anyway. So that's the first. The second is the rule of three. And this might sound a little harsh, but it's all about creating a culture of empowerment instead of enablement. So I don't ever want to be the only person that can answer a question or that they feel like they can't move unless they have permission. So the rule of three is you can come ask me a question if you've done three things. One, you've Googled it or chat GPT at this point. Two, you've looked in our knowledge base or all of our resources. Three, you've asked somebody else on the team. If you have exhausted that list, by all means, come to me with a problem, but also come to me with a solution. Because the first question I'm going to ask you when you come to me is, what would you suggest we do? Because I'm not here, like my number one directive as a leader is to create other leaders. I'm not here to create other followers or people that just do what I want them to do. I mean, yes, they have to follow SOPs and things like that. But I want people that, you know, test the status quo. And so when it comes to technology, the system should serve the business. We shouldn't try to shoehorn a business into a system. 
So if it's not being adopted or it's making things overly complicated, my first question is always why? I think also people use tools sometimes as the catch-all problem solver that doesn't actually work for what you're talking about, which is like universal access to stuff. Like we have, we use Basecamp. I'm a big fan of Basecamp. We have an HQ folder. All the logins for everything are there. So like you can access whatever you need at any time, like go for it. And there's group chats and there's things that are organized and there's weekly agendas and all those things. But I notice sometimes like brands will use like Slack as their full catch-all. And I'm like, that's ah, an instant messenger. That's not, like, that can't be your database. Yikes. It's just, there's no way to track progress. There's no way to get bird's eye view. There's no way to see. And then what inevitably happens on Slack, and it happens sometimes on Basecamp too, is that people just rely on these pings, these like instant messengers all day long, and they don't put the details that are relevant to the project in the thread that's related to the project. So then it's not traceable. So I'm constantly doing this with my team too, of like, you have to train them and train the clients. We have clients too, that will try to text me or DM me or email me something relating to their project. And I said, hey, it's got to go in Basecamp or it doesn't exist. If it's not in there, because we can't service what you need if you can't use the tools that we've set in place for you to be successful. Like it's on both sides. It's the team side and the client facing side. Absolutely. My favorite quote is unshared expectations are nothing more than premeditated resentments for that very reason. And I think, you know, to the Slack point, I think that there's something really powerful in what you were saying about dings. So we have something like, I don't have the figures in front of me, but something like we are interrupted every eight minutes. I believe it. Yeah. And some of them are self-interruptions where you're like, oh, you know what? I remember seeing like we need to buy toilet paper. So then you like go on Costco and you're buying toilet paper. That's a self-interruption versus Slack, email, text, all the things. And for every interruption, it takes about 25 minutes to get refocused. And so if you are not again, to go back to having a proactive versus a reactive business. If you are not proactively running your day and ruthless about notifications and what you say no to, then your day will run you. And like in my business, we have a 48 to 72 hour rule, which means you cannot request something of somebody unless you give them 48 to 72 hours notice. I like that. Because We're not in the business of emergencies and firefighting. Like there's literally nothing in a business that is an emergency unless there's bone or blood showing. (laughs) Agree 1000%. Man, if I could put that at the top of every client's Basecamp folder, I'm like, this is goddamn graphic design. (laughs) Let's check it for a second. Let's just realize that like getting this file right now, this hour is not going to solve the thing that you're going to get them. Like, what are we doing? Where is this coming from? I totally agree. That's one of my biggest pet peeves with just work in general is like the lack of boundaries and lack of focus, like you're saying. But I digress. Continue what your point was. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love this passion. Because it's just, I think it's so easy to not take accountability and responsibility where we've dropped the ball and say like, oh, it didn't get done because so-and-so didn't get it on time or that, I don't know, AWS went down or this or that, or I couldn't log in. But the point is that that's just lazy. Like at the end of the day, where your business is today is the result of the choices that you've made days, weeks, months ago, which is why to bring it full circle, Trying to run your business based on revenue, which is a lagging metric, is not going to get you very far. And so the faster you make 
the commitment and the transition to being more strategic, more proactive, finding the right rhythms for your business and the right people and the backup with the processes, the faster it will actually gain momentum and momentum begets momentum. And also being the example. Like I think when my team members ask for things and I'm in deep focus mode, like I need to be in deep focus mode. And so we have that toggle on Basecamp. I admittedly don't use it as much as I should. I've got my phone on do not disturb. I will go on to like TikTok live because it mutes all my other notifications as almost like a forces me to sit down and focus, like use the tools, use the different devices that are going to make you get what you need to get done. I love kind of like a Pomodoro method. I don't know if you're into this thing. I love Pomodoro. Yeah. And I'll say, you know, I'll talk to my Alexa and have her turn on a timer. And then at the end of that, regardless of where I'm at in the project, I have to stand up. I got to do something else for 25 minutes. I got to go get on my Peloton bike, clean the bathroom, take my dog out. Like, because you're going to get to that point where in that 25 minutes, it's not like just because you're not at your laptop doesn't mean you're not thinking about what you're going to do when you're going to sit back down. But it gives you that distance from it to be more effective, to be more intentional with your time so that you don't just get absolutely sucked into a black hole and get distracted. You know, I think that's something that people forget. It's so true. And there's the law of diminishing returns as well. So 45 minutes typically is like the maximum attention span where you can really do focused work and then you need a five to 10 minute break. Because when we, you know, I'm in the generation of we pulled all nighters, but at some point your brain's just not there. And this week was really tough for me just to cancel meetings and be like, guys, I'm just, I'm not here because, you know, I feel like I'm letting everyone down. But The truth is, if I had just powered through, then I probably would have whatever the sinus congestion is for longer. And so when you create the distance from you and the problem, you come back with more creative thinking because was it Thomas? Maybe it was Einstein that said you can't solve a problem with the same thinking that created it. It's very true. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, these are all good lessons. I feel like every time similar to you, like when you're sick and you're like, well, now I have to take forced rest. You start thinking about all kinds of stuff that you're like, damn, I could be doing all this stuff differently. And now this is opening my eyeballs to it. Oh, my goodness. Well, great stuff. I think there's a lot to gain from this episode. Of course, we talked about all sorts of topics and a lot of your expertise. So thank you for that. Where can everyone find you, follow you, work with you, all of that good stuff? So the best place is probably to pop on over to my podcast, the Biz Doctor Podcast. I share a lot of great tools, techniques, perspective changes all the things over there. And then we have some great resources at goldenkeypartnership.com. I'm an elder millennial. So really the only places you can find me online are Instagram at it's Lauren Goldstein or on LinkedIn. I'm not a TikToker or any of the other, I'm sure there's more, but yeah, (laughs) those are probably the best places to connect, but I'd love to connect and hear all about your business. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time and we'll catch you next time, guys. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for joining us for the Kiss My Aesthetic podcast. Don't forget to follow along and leave us a review anywhere you listen to podcasts. We'll see you in the Kiss My Aesthetic Facebook group for years and years of behind the scenes content and over 5,000 connections with fellow creatives. For show notes from today's episode, please visit mkwcreative.co slash podcast. This episode was edited by Berta Wired and theme music comes from Eliza Vera and Nathan Menard. Catch you next time. Music